Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. We are so glad to have you in this merry, joyful season of our lives. Indeed. And going off of that, you guys are going to be taking a little break from hearing our lovely voices serenading you on Thursday mornings. Yes, the jingling jingles of our voices and the merry and bright sounds of our storytelling (laughs) will briefly be on pause. Yes, our holiday hiatus, if you will. Yes, and we we prepared you last week, but if you're someone who's like listening two in a row, you're catching up, I'm sorry to break it to you, but this is the last episode of 2022. Indeed. We are going to take a much-needed vacay. Yes. But is it really a vacay? No, because we're going to be active on our social media, working on the website, chipping away at stuff behind the scenes. But ultimately, our first episode back from our break will be on the first Thursday of the new year. Wonderful. And we're going to start off the new year strong, and we're going to continue going strong and then end strong as well. So you guys will be very much pleased with our work. Which is why we need a holiday hiatus, because this is the only break that we take all year. Yes, it is. And like you said, Katie, we are going to be working behind the scenes. We've been teasing it for a while. We're trying really hard to get some stuff in the works for you guys. So I think this holiday hiatus will be the perfect time to... uh, tie up some loose ends, and figure some stuff out. Indeed. But in the meantime, we are going to go out with a bang, and we have a real good one for you today. It's a long one, but it's a good one. It's one of those things that you learn, when you're researching, you learn a lot. Like, I learned a lot about pyrotechnics and the uh, installation of foam in buildings. This reminds me of the plane crash episode we did. It was episode 36. Yes. Where we learned a shit ton while we're doing research. And it's also one of those cases we like to cover here and then. Yeah. About an event. Yes. It's very much true crime. Absolutely. Um, There's a bunch of devastating casualties. There's a whole crazy lawsuit. Um, It's a lot. But yeah, buckle up. And if you are someone that likes true crime where it's an event i know i do i most certainly do i really enjoy it that's one of my favorite um subgenres, if you will indeed yes before we go into our big event today this case was suggested to us by julia d via email um i actually used to work with julia we would talk about paranormal stuff on the overnight shift nice very lovely case suggestion julia thank you thank you julia we hadn't had this one on our list oh so because of you we added it and here we are today thank you amy c also suggested this one to us via website submission thank you amy we're very excited to be covering this one and go out with a fiery bang well said katie And not making light of this situation because Mm -hmm. it is, you guys are going to hear this if you haven't heard it before, it is brutal. If you guys are uncomfortable or easily triggered or upset about things like mass casualty events or fire perhaps, maybe this wouldn't be the right episode for you. It is pretty intense. Like I said, we learned a lot about like pyrotechnics and things of that nature, so we do talk about the technicalities, but there is a lot of death in this story. Yeah. So much death that we can't name every person who died. We will have a photo of them on our website and our Instagram, um, but it's a huge mass casualty event. Absolutely. And if you are bothered by fires, you're not alone. This was really hard for me to research, mostly because my dad's a retired firefighter, so he instilled a lot of fear fire into me yeah absolutely but honestly this kind of situation is one of my all-time greatest fears oh one thousand so brutal it's very scary and it happens Mm -hmm. that's why we have rules and regulations so if you're someone who works in a department that is a ruler or a regulator of literally anything god bless you fucking thank you for keeping everybody safe for real 
because this is also an event like we've covered in the past where there have been a multitude of human error, system failure that led to just a devastating situation. Yeah. So if you're someone that does rules and regulations, seriously, thank you for keeping masses safe. And you know what? Treat yourself. You deserve it. Yeah. Because I'm sure your job is very boring at the same time. Oh my God, I know. But you do hard work, so God bless you. Yeah. This holiday season. (laughs) Anywho. Anywho. Hopefully you guys stick around. It's going to be very interesting and a lot of technicalities and a lot of words, but it's going to be good. And without further ado, today we will be covering the The Station Station Nightclub Fire. Okay, just because we're going on a hiatus doesn't mean anything's going to change. Katie, please give me your sources for this episode. I would be honored. Oh. Like you said, you said it perfectly. No changes, no surprises. Starting off strong here with Wikipedia. God bless. Tis the season for Uh, giving thanks. That is, oh, shiny (laughs) and bright. Donate to Wikipedia with your give back holiday cheer, please. Please. CBS News was also another one. NIST.gov, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Hmm. Boston.com and WGBH.com. Great. I, as well, had Wikipedia. Thank God. God God bless. I used a website called govinfo.gov, which um, involved the same report that you just referred to, Katie. I used CBS News, Providence Journal, a website called Essay Lancer, and also the Daily Mail, which I learned recently is like the biggest tabloid in England, so... Yeah, it's a tabloid, but I will say we've used them before, especially yeah. for pictures. Yes, yeah. Um, they're kind of sleazy with their, like, paparazzi photos, but, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's the only thing we can find, so. Yeah. yeah. So, there's that. But I did, I'm not going to lie to you, I used them as a, so I read the thing, so I put it in there. Hell yeah. Everything else, though, m- real. <laughs> no, it was real stuff. It's just more, like, slander and, like, yeah. accusatory things, I think, but, anywho... Let's get started with a little history lesson, if you will. We know you love history. You come here for the history side of our podcast, right? Perfect. Here, here you go. It's brief. It's bringing it's, us right to the timeline. It's pretty brief. So, located at 211 Coesset Avenue in West Warwick, Rhode Island, the Station Nightclub was filled with many rock and roll fans on the night of February 20th, 2003. So that's, picture this, the scene, the timeline. That is the location we are at. Now, obviously, I just said it was a nightclub. Hadn't always been a nightclub. This building went through it over the years. It had many aliases, if you will. The first being an old gin mill. Delicious. It was converted to a restaurant, and then somewhere along the lines, it was converted to a club, which brings us where we are here. Yes. The club was also commonly used as a concert venue, most commonly used for heavy metal music. Rock on! (laughs) And I think it is important to note that this building is pretty ancient. Yeah. And by ancient, I mean it was built in 1946, which I... Bet you my grandfather would probably argue is not ancient because he was born earlier than that. In March of 2000, the Station Nightclub was purchased for what would eventually be the last time, albeit unknown at that point. The club was purchased by brothers Michael and Jeffrey Derdarian. Now listen, here's the thing. When you own a building, when you purchase a house even, you get it inspected. It's safe. You have to do that. Especially if you're owning a venue of some mm-hmm. sort where people attend. You gotta make sure it's safe, right? Well, sometimes people aren't good at their jobs, <laughs> right? This specific incident is where the fire marshal is not so good at his job. 
which is unfortunate for what we're going to tell you the rest of the story. In November of 2002, the club was cited for nine fire code violations. No worries, guys. They were minor violations. But I feel like nine minors equals at least three majors. (laughs) Right? And in writing up these nine minor safety violations, he missed a huge safety violation that was completely overlooked and never cited at all whatsoever. Right. The club was soundproofed using polyurethane foam, which, fun fact, is extremely flammable. Extremely. Like, the most flammable. It is two coats of essentially different materials, one layered on top of another, and we will get into why that fucking sucks in a little bit. Yes. But just know that it is a major safety violation that was completely overlooked and will bite everybody in the ass in just a few minutes. Right. And the worst part of this, I think, is that this fire marshal went back to the club in December of 2002 to check in on them and see if they had corrected the nine minor violations, right? And ultimately, he gave them the all clear, which is awkward because for the second time, he missed a very, very important detail. They had acoustic foam made of that polyurethane that was so flammable you could think about fire and it would catch on fire. And the guy was like, well, looks good to me. I'll be here for Metallica next month. (laughs) Crazy. It's so, it's so upsetting. That's his whole job. He's a fire marshal. Right. I don't, listen, I don't know anything about fire. I'm not a fire marshal. I don't work for the government. I don't know anything. But that, I feel like, is a bad job. Yeah. And it's going to be the first human failure of many. So, the night in question, February 20th, 2003, a heavy metal band, like the ones that were very common at this venue, was headlining. It was a band called Great White. The event was emceed by Michael Gonzalez, who was a disc jockey for Providence Rock radio station WHJY. He was also known as Dr. Metal. I like that. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) He was the host of the WHJY program, The Metal Zone, which, fun fact, at the time was the longest-running heavy metal radio program in the United States. Wow. So this event was a pretty big deal for metalheads, which makes it all the more devastating because people packed in to see this happen. Absolutely. Yep. Just shortly after 11 p.m., Great White began performing their opening number, Desert Moon, Tour manager Daniel Bichelle was setting off pyrotechnics that ignited the polyurethane foam that we talked about on both sides and in the top middle of an alcove where the drummer usually goes towards the back of the stage. Shit starts getting real, real fast. It was like immediate. As soon as they got on stage, it was like, woo, I'm going to light these. They were called gerbs. And the tour manager, Daniel, like you said, he just... He just lit them. To give you guys a visual, gerbs are these cylinder-shaped things that produce a spray of sparks. If you've ever been to a concert, if you've ever been to anything like that, you've seen these in action. Yep. Four of these gerbs were set off, and they were supposed to spray sparks 15 feet high for 15 seconds, and two of them were on the sides, and the top two were pointing straight up. Yeah. So a problem here is that the ceilings in the club are 12 feet high, and these gerbs are set to spray 15 feet high. Right. So the polyurethane foam that is everywhere was very quickly ignited. So quickly. It was like instantaneous. So like you said, Katie, once those gerbs were set off, it ignited the alcove above the drummer. And within seconds, the polyurethane foam, or also called the acoustic foam, on both sides of the stage was on fire. In as quickly as 11 seconds, it became obvious that the flames were not a part of the show. I mean, it's not uncommon to have 
sparks and fireworks and fire with a heavy metal band, right? Mm-hmm. So at first it was like, oh yeah, this show. And then as soon as 11 seconds, people were like, oh my God. In as quickly as 25 seconds, the ceiling above both sides of the stage had caught on fire. Roughly 30 seconds after the gerbs were set off, the crowd began to evacuate as the band stopped even attempting to play because they were still trying. And then they began to frantically attempt to leave. It took roughly 41 seconds for the fire alarm to go off, which is a long time. And for the associated strobe lights that go with a fire alarm to begin to flash and alert the people, hey, there's a fire. Probably a good idea to get out of here. What I do want to mention is that while the fire alarm was activated, the sprinklers weren't activated because there were none. Hold on to that fact as we talk about the tragedy that occurs. And that brings us to one minute when the Rhode Island Emergency Center began to get calls from cell phones about the fire. The worst part about this, well, there's a lot of worst parts, (laughs) but it's adding to the fact, is that this stupid fucking phone is not only extraordinarily flammable, it causes this thick, dark, black smoke to develop instantly. Yeah. The minute a flame touches this foam, there is smoke. Right. And the problem with this smoke is that it is full of carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide gas. I don't even have to know what hydrogen cyanide gas is to know that the word cyanide is not good. Thank you. Cyanide is poison. Right. It's literally poison. Being in the same room as this, plus breathing in carbon monoxide, and when you're panicking, you're breathing faster and you're breathing in more. The problem with these two gases is that they are so potent, you would only have to inhale it two or three times before losing consciousness and suffocating. Internally suffocating. Indeed. That's horrifying. The reason that people didn't immediately panic or immediately evacuate when they saw flames is because the song that the band was performing, the music video for that song, has the band surrounded by flames. So they genuinely, everybody thought it was part of the act. Yeah. The pyrotechnics ended in 15 seconds. Yeah. That's how long they were set for. And just 20 seconds after the pyrotechnics stopped, that's when the band stopped playing. Crazy. It was so instantaneous. Everything was just... The lead singer, Jack Russell, actually said into the microphone very calmly, wow, that's not good. Right. And then in less than one minute, the entire stage was completely engulfed in flames. Most of the band members and a few others accompanying them had ran for an exit on the west side of the stage. Yeah, so they had almost like a special exit that the other people Mm -hmm. didn't have because they were the band. You know, they came in a certain way that the patrons didn't come in. So they got very lucky with that, which is, I mean, good for them. But they they thought it was kind of a part of the act, too, I think. Yeah, they they did not grasp what was going on at all. right. And within 90 seconds of the gerbs being set off, the whole room was filled with that black, thick smoke. And it was, like, almost settled to the ground. Like, it was very heavy. So this was happening very fast. There was no time to panic. There was no time to take two to three breaths. Like, you were scrambling in a room that was dark because of the smoke, and you're not being able to breathe. Right. And now you can't see... Right. You're tripping over other people. You're tripping over furniture. Mm-hmm. Someone described tripping over a bar stool and like smacking their face. Oh. And then they get up and they can't see their hand in front of their face. Like it's yeah. it's absolutely terrifying. Right. And within 100 seconds of this fire starting, the entire front entrance was completely stalled because of the mass volume of people trying to leave all at the same time. Mass hysteria. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And survivors describe the doorway, standing on the outside looking at the doorway, and people were piled on top of each other, stuck, crushed. And that's another genuine fear 
that I feel like a lot of people have is being stuck in a crowd crush situation. Yeah. So the building has four exits, but everybody's natural instinct was to go out the same door everyone came in. Mm -hmm. So everybody is running through this door and then there's a narrow hallway and people are pressing up against each other, pressing up against the hallway. And it just became such a situation where the whole exit was completely blocked off trapping people in the hallway and in the burning building. Yeah. It's pure chaos, pure panic. It's awful. It's terrifying. And after just five minutes, it's roughly like 11, 13 p.m. at this point, the flames were already pouring out of the windows and the doorways. And also of note, this is when the first fire truck arrived. So, I mean, five minutes into the fire, normally I feel like wouldn't be as whoa, that's such a slow amount of time. It's because that the crushing and the trapped people and the smoke, the hydrogen cyanide gas and the carbon monoxide, these people, they're doomed, to put it lightly. To make matters worse, as if, you know, we're going to keep making matters worse. Right. The venue was licensed for 404 people. 462 people were in attendance for the concert. Yeah. That does not include bodyguards, staff, people with the band, bouncers, people working the bar. So this venue is packed way beyond capacity. Easily 100 people plus. And a huge factor with a crowd crush situation is, I mean, obviously the amount of people per square foot. So the more people you're adding, especially in a venue that's only able to hold a certain amount, and now you're holding more because you want to sell more tickets, right? of course it's going to be a problem if anyone were to have to evacuate. Absolutely. It's unsafe to even allow that. One of the survivors who was working a merch table for the band said that the liquor bottles at the bar were exploding from the heat and the fire. Whoa. So now imagine... You're trying to get out of a burning building. Yeah. There's furniture. There's people. There's smoke. You can't breathe. You can't see. Your eyes are on fire. Your throat is burning. And you just hear explosions. And you're being hit with shards of glass. Oh, that's terrifying. It really just paints a picture of chaos. Yeah. Absolute fucking chaos. And how this could have been avoided if that fire marshal... It all started with him. It all started with whoever put the foam in. Mm -hmm. Let's be real. And that was, I believe it was the brothers who purchased the nightclub. Yeah. So it all started with that. And then the fire marshal missing it. And then the tour manager, and we'll talk more about it later, without permission, setting off the pyrotechnics, which in turn caused this. So about 15 minutes after the ignition of the Gerbs, there was a triage area that had been set up next door, like in a parking lot, and they officially implemented the mass casualty plan, which is horrifying. And I mean, just the title alone, mass casualty. It's awful. You know what's about to happen. There's a lot of death here. So by 12.16 a.m., so just a little over an hour after the fire started, a majority of the building had collapsed. It was gutted. But in a much more real sense, it wasn't gutted because there was a lot of people in there. Yeah. Between the amount of people that died from crush injuries in the hallway, the people trapped in between other people in the crowd, and the people trapped inside the club, 100 people died. Yes. Cause of death varied from crush injuries, smoke inhalation, and burns. Yes. 50% of the people that survived were injured from those causes as well. Yes. Those are some insane numbers. Absolutely. What's so scary to me is that of the 100 people, 96 died immediately in that building. 96. Three people died later over the course of a few days of their injuries. And then the last person to die from their injuries of the fire was 70 days later. So that brought it to 100, like you said. 96 within moments. Moments. I would guess probably within five minutes. 
easily less. 100%. That is unfathomable and scary. And it makes me feel like have trouble breathing. Like it's researching this. I was panicked because it's just imagining someone you know or just anyone in that situation knowing how awful their last moments probably were is scary and it happened to 96 people 230 people were injured oh my god on top of the 100 that died and even if you survived this your life was completely changed not even with PTSD, survivor's guilt, but with the extent of the injuries themselves. Right. A lot of the survivors said that part of their injuries were bleeding from inside of their throat from the toxic fumes. Yeah. Several of the survivors woke up from medically induced comas weeks later, Mm -hmm. not being able to walk, not being able to talk or breathe on their own, to feed themselves, to do anything. They had to undergo months of Physical therapy, respiratory therapy to recover from the damage from smoke inhalation and severe burns. That's awful. So something that's kind of crazy. I mean, it was 2003, so technology was kind of figuring itself out. There was a cameraman named Brian Butler who worked for WPRI-TV of Providence, Rhode Island. He was at the concert that night and he was doing like a video piece on nightclub safety because... Just three days earlier, there was a nightclub stampede in Chicago that ended up killing 21 people. So he decided, okay, I'm going to do a piece on that. So he brought his camera, and you can see the footage. He's taping the show. And as soon as it starts, there he is with his camera. And we all know that as soon as it starts, the fire starts. And so he gets all of that on camera. So according to ryan it seems like at the very start like we said people were very confused thought it was a part of the act and were kind of excited and then there was like no panic and then people just kind of started to turn in confusion and be like wait a second it all just happened so fast and he said it seemed like all at once everyone realized the severity of the situation and booked it for that front door so brian actually recalls that he left through that front door successfully. And then he turned back around and kicked out a side window so he could help others escape. He noticed at least one person crawling out of there, so which is wonderful, that's a great idea. But he like left and tried to help more, like he didn't stick around. And he noticed that there was black smoke pouring out of the windows, out of the front door, over the heads of people stacked on top of each other. And um, Brian says that within that literally two minutes the whole place was thick dense black smoke great white's lead guitarist ty longley and the mc michael gonzalves were among those that died in the fire it's believed that they both tried to save equipment as the fire first started ty the lead guitarist actually made it out of the fire but he turned back and ran to grab his guitar that breaks my heart for his loved ones it's heartbreaking because I, I get it. You think my stuff. You're thinking, oh, this is precious to me. This is really important. You, you're you not thinking, but you're thinking. Like, it's so weird. Right. So that's tragic that he made that decision in the heat of the moment, pun not intended, and ended up losing his life. And you never think that it's going to happen to you. Like, you don't think, oh, this fire is going to spread so quick. Right. There's going to be poisonous smoke black smoke that I'm not going to be able to see in the span of 30 seconds. I'm not going to be able to see my hand in front of my face. Right. You don't think about that. Quite a few of the survivors said that one of the club's bouncers, Scott Vieira, stopped people who were trying to exit. A lot of people noticed the band was exiting from like that stage exit. Right. So some of them tried to run out and he was blocking them and telling them to go to the front door because that exit was, quote, for the band only. Oh my god. What a yeah. piece of shit. As the whole place is on fire, wouldn't you say, use whatever door you fucking want? Of course. Another bouncer named Tracy King took the opposite route and ran in and out of the burning building nine times That's to save people. That's beautiful. Tracy's brother Jody showed up at the scene when he heard what happened 
and he was frantically looking for Tracy, sorting through people in the triage, running around grabbing strangers. Have you seen my brother? This is what he looks like. Yeah. He was approached by the victim's nine separate family members, and they all thanked him, quote, for having a great brother. He threw my wife, my cousin, my uncle, my sister out a window. What a great brother you have. You should be proud. Oh. And he said, I am so proud of my brother. Yeah. Nine times running in and out of a burning building. Yeah. That's so brave. He saved nine people. Like, that's incredible. That's beautiful. What a good man. That is one of the... I mean, it's tragic he lost his life, but that is a silver lining right there. That's wonderful. A woman named Gina Russo was at the station nightclub that night with her fiancé, Freddie Chrysostomy, when the fire broke out. She doesn't remember how, but she remembers her hair kind of lit on fire. The fire in her hair ended up leading to burns on over 40% of her body. Wow. What she remembers is Freddie being behind her when they were pushing towards the door, and then she got out and he did not. So he died in the fire. Wow. Since that fire, Gina has undergone more than 50 surgeries to repair the burnt skin and the like. A woman named Robin Petraka was seated nearby the door that night, like five feet away, when the fire started. Robin was able to escape super quickly. Unfortunately, she was there with a large group of friends, and nine of her friends died that night. Wow. Yeah. Another silver lining, similar to Tracy... Robin had a cell phone and it worked. So she was able to hand out her cell phone, like pass it around to people who made it out so they could call their loved ones. And this is back when cell phone bills, like you got, you know, you got charged for talk time. She said her bill that month was $646. Oh my God. Because she passed it around to so many people, which is beautiful. But she lost nine friends. Yeah. And she escaped unharmed physically, which is great. A man named Paul Vanner was the sound technician and the stage manager at the station nightclub, and he was working that night. So he managed to actually get out a nearby fire extinguisher, and then he realized really quickly that that was not going to do anything. So he ran out, and he, he got out, and he survived. In his haste, he did manage to kind of get a co-worker and some patrons, like, out the door. And so he helped those people, and they all just kind of followed. It was, like, four people, and they got out safely. Um, years later, I mean, to this day, Paul feels guilty. He thinks that he should have tried to extinguish the fire. He thinks that, you know, he didn't lead those people out to safety. They just were nearby him, and they left at the same time. He struggled a lot with drug and alcohol abuse since the fire and he's lost jobs and his driver license and he's just been having a really tough time so it proves that not all of the injuries from this fire the survivors was physical there's i imagine every single one of them has at least a portion of ptsd because that's so horrifying and then you factor in survivor's guilt especially if you went with a fiance, a friend, a sibling, yeah. and you got out and they didn't. Yeah. And that's what Paul was feeling here. Mm-hmm. And he did the right thing. He knew that that fire extinguisher and knowing now that wouldn't have done anything. And he could have died in the process. Absolutely. Wow. An investigation conducted by the National Institute of Standards and Technology revealed that a sprinkler system would have contained the fire and smoke enough to have allowed every single person to exit the building safely and you know we talked about it briefly there was no sprinkler system not a single sprinkler let alone a whole system not a single sprinkler how is that legal that makes me want to cry like to think that it could have been so many places this could have been stopped and as i'm sorry as a fire marshal aren't you looking around for sprinklers like that's not what i'm understanding at all well here's the thing this is came out after that they were thinking maybe the building had because the building had been built in 1946 and it was small they thought maybe it would be exempt from needing a sprinkler system which why would anything be exempt from that it's a building it has 
people in it and flammable things. Even if they didn't have the acoustic foam, chairs, people catch on fire. Especially with a restaurant, like a grease fire, you're done. Oh, forget it. And that's even better like that you say that, Katie, because while it was true that they would have been exempt if that were the case, the building was a restaurant before it was a nightclub. Mm-hmm. And that automatically made it so the law was no longer appropriate and the building did, in fact, need sprinklers. But the fire marshal, you never notice. So it wasn't fixed. Mm. Attorney General Patrick Lynch said that the flammable foam used was like the equivalent of gallons and gallons of gasoline. He actually called it, quote, liquid fire. Ugh. He also noted that one of the exits had a second door that opened on the inside instead of the outside, which was a huge safety violation. It was actually something that was cited during the inspection. Really? The brothers took it down after the first inspection. The second inspection, a month later, came along. They got the A-OK, everything's great. After that second inspection, they put the door back because they said it would help block out noise. Oh, my God. Patrick Lynch stated, quote, Not only was the door up, which it shouldn't have been, opened inward, which it shouldn't have, it was covered in foam. (gasps) It was also on fire. That door being up, there's no question that increased the likelihood that many, many more would perish. I didn't know that part. Mm -hmm. That's terrifying. And so negligent. That makes me want to... A door that opens inward... Now imagine people are pushing and shoving. Open the door, open the door. The door is on fire and it opens inside rather than out. And it's acting like a barrier. I can't. That It's awful. I that can't. single-handedly caused more people to die. Absolutely it did. If they had not put it back up. Like they were supposed to. Right. People could have gotten out. Even if it opened outward instead of inward, it would have let more people out. Isn't, oh my god, that that makes me just so sad. It was also noted that anyone intending to use pyrotechnics was to submit a written plan that included important information, such as date, time, location, and even the qualifications of the person lighting the pyrotechnics. And they were supposed to submit that 24 hours, within 24 hours of their use. Apparently, neither the band nor the club had obtained necessary state permissions to use the pyrotechnics. And as a result, well, it happened. All that happened. I guarantee you if they had presented that to the fire chief or whoever the necessary person is, hey, we're going to use these gerbs. We have them 15 by 15, 15 feet for 15 seconds. They would have said, don't do that. The ceilings in the club are only 12 feet high. And then they would have gone, oh, shucks, that's, that stinks. I was hoping for a little bit of a show. We'll just have to use strobe lights. Wow, look how easily we did that. Right. That didn't happen. And 100 people died. Yeah. Yep. So, as obviously stated, and you said it, Katie, and we touched upon it, obviously there was a lack of an efficient exit system. And it was largely a part of the reason why so many people died. It is actually estimated that approximately two-thirds of the patrons tried to exit through the front door. And there was also not enough windows to help victims escape, which is also a part of, like, an exit plan that would be implemented in, like, a business or an inspection. Yeah, there wasn't enough windows. The windows that they did have, the glass in them was so hard to break that a woman was kicking, 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 screaming, banging, kicking a window... And someone outside, actually an off-duty police officer outside, heard the commotion, heard her screaming, kicking, grabbed a tire iron, and he smashed the window from the outside. Wow. But she and, like, three other people are all trying to kick open a window, and it would not break. Yeah. So people died trying to kick out windows. Right. Oh, my God. On December 9th, 2003, club owners Jeffrey and Michael Derdarian, as well as Daniel Bichelle, Great White's road manager, were each charged with 200 counts of involuntary manslaughter. Even though 100 people died, they were all charged twice, once for criminal negligence manslaughter for ignoring risks to others, and once for misdemeanor manslaughter for a petty crime resulting in death. 
I think that's genius, honestly, of the court to do that. Because they're right. They fucked up in at least two ways. For sure. Right? So that's totally fair. For sure. And then the Dardarian brothers were also fined $1.7 million for failure to carry workman's comp insurance for their staff. And four staff died in the fire. Yeah. So good that they had to pay for that. Because Jesus Christ, how do you not have workers' comp? Isn't that like, what? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Ugh, I can't even deal. So, Daniel Bichelle's trial occurred first. He was the tour manager, and he actually had his trial first because he went against his legal team's advice. Uh, They told him to plead not guilty, and he pled guilty. And so as a result, he got 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter, and he was charged with that on February 7th, 2006, almost exactly three years since the fire. His reasoning for pleading guilty, I want this to be over with, is what he said. The prosecutor asked that Bichelle be sentenced to 10 years in prison, which was the maximum sentencing that could be had underneath what he was charged with. However, the judge sentenced him to 15 years in prison with four to serve and 11 years suspended. And he also had to be on probation for three years. The judge decided that Bichelle was unlikely to reoffend, and as a result, he was released in March of 2008. And fun fact, sad fact, fact that pulled at my heartstrings a little bit, while he was dealing with the aftermath of this, Daniel Bichelle handwrote letters to each of the 100 victims' families. Beautiful. He was so remorseful. He gave a whole long statement to the families, apologizing. He was devastated. Yeah. The judge actually stated, the greatest sentence that can be imposed on you has been imposed on you by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Multiple family members actually wrote to the parole board expressing their feelings that Daniel wasn't guilty of anything, it wasn't his fault, and he was just the scapegoat. Yeah. His act of pleading guilty also meant a lot to the family members. And, you know, it's I'm conflicted personally in my thoughts, because he did set the pyrotechnics. For sure. He did not request permission. He didn't seek out, you know, a conversation beforehand. Obviously, it was criminal negligence, but mm-hmm. it was a mistake at the end of the day. He did not purposefully mean to kill even half a person. Right, especially a member of the band he was a tour manager of. He's right. devastated. Yeah. It's ugh. it's hard. It's hard because he did really fuck up pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And then he does that where he writes handwritten letters to ugh. all the victims' families. And it's like, oh my God, dude. My heart. A chairwoman, Lisa Hawley, on the parole board told journalists, I think the most overwhelming part of it for me was the depth of forgiveness that many of these families that have sustained such a loss. Yeah. They really, the whole community, Mm -hmm. it was very touching and also so sad. So sad. As for the brothers. Oh, the brothers. (laughs) Yeah. They actually changed their not guilty plea to a plea of no contest, which actually allowed them to avoid their trial. And uh, for some reason, somehow made it so their trials were merged together. Yeah. Which is interesting. Michael Derdarian received 15 years in prison with four to serve, 11 years suspended, plus three years probation, which was the same sentence as Daniel Bichelle. Jeffrey Derdarian received 500 hours of community service. During his sentencing, he actually told about how he also tried to run at the fire with the extinguisher, and he couldn't make it on time, and he did give a very heartfelt apology to the families. Yeah. To give Michael credit, he was not even in the state at this time. Right. Jeffrey called him, and he was like, what's going on? What's happening? What are you talking about? How bad is it? Yeah. And he was devastated to hear about what had happened. And it's funny because he was the one who went to jail. Right. And the reason why it's, I don't know, touching to me, but also kind of sad. They had to decide which one went to jail. Mm -hmm. And so they talked about it and they decided that Michael would be better fit to serve in prison. And so he got sent to jail while Jeffrey went free. And Jeffrey was the one who was there. Mm -hmm. 
which kind of blows my mind. Michael was released in June of 2009 for good behavior, though. So he did not serve more than two years, I think. Yeah. But, of course, he still had three years probation, which ended in 2011, 2012. And same with... uh, Daniel Bichelle, and they are all free men now. Yeah. The judge also said that the difference in the brothers' sentencing reflected their involvement with the purchase and installation of the polyurethane foam. Makes sense. At least $115 million has been offered or paid to victims' families from various companies involved. The Jack Russell Tour Group offered $1 million in a settlement to survivors and victims' relatives. That was the maximum amount allowed under the band's insurance plan. Wow. That was the band. Whoa. The company that dealt with the band. Club owners Jeffrey and Michael Derdarian have offered to settle for 813000 which is to be covered by their insurance plan. Hmm. The state of Rhode Island and the town of West Warwick agreed to pay $10 million as a settlement. Wow. Sealed Air Corporation, which is the company that made flammable packaging foam used in the club, paid a $25 million settlement. Wow. The brothers were sent the wrong foam, and nothing on the packaging indicated how flammable it was. Whoa. They did not order that foam. Mm -hmm. They did not know that the foam they received was the wrong kind. Right. There was nothing to say that it was. And the fire marshal was the one that was supposed to test the foam to see how flammable it was, and that was a test that was never conducted. (gasps) Oh, no. So at the end of the day, yes, it falls on the brothers, of course, but it was also a mistake on the foam company's end. Right. And the foam company has had other problems because they're not saying how flammable the foam is on the packaging. Right. And to be sent the wrong foam and not have any knowledge or expertise in soundproofing foam like I I wouldn't know the difference no me neither in March of 2008 JBL speakers settled out of court for 815,000 wow they had flammable foam inside their speakers oh Mm -hmm. wow Home Depot and Polar Industries which is a Connecticut based insulation company that also had a role in the foam wow made a settlement offer of 5 million Providence radio station WHJY-FM promoted the show that was emceed by its DJ, Mike the Doctor Gonzalves, who was one of the casualties that night, paid a settlement of $22 million. Holy shit. American Foam Corporation, who sold most of the insulation to the station nightclub, agreed in 2008 to pay $6.3 million to help settle lawsuits. Jeez. Mm -hmm. That is so much money. And that's so many different companies and corporations, and it's crazy. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. Everybody had a hand in the pot for making this such a devastating casualty. Yeah. That's insane. Mm-hmm. The band Great White has not since performed the song Desert Moon. Wow. They have held a bunch of benefit concerts to raise money for the families of the victims. They actually ended up splitting up oh. into, like, two separate groups. Oh. Neither of them could play a show in New England until 2015. Wow. That was how devastated they were. Whoa. The National Fire Protection Association issued amendments to the National Life Safety Code requiring automatic fire sprinklers in all nightclubs and similar venues that can hold more than 100 people. Why not just even one person? You would think that would be common sense. Right? In 2017, the Station Fire Memorial Park opened on the same property where the fire took place. Survivors of the fire struggle with significant PTSD, survivor's guilt, especially people who said they used other people's bodies to save themselves. Oh. In the crush. That's heartbreaking. It's it's so awful. Poor things. And that's just human instinct. Of like course. it's survivor's instinct. You have to do what you have to do. Absolutely. But they, they're they devastated. They feel so awful. Yeah, there's no reasoning. But, like, you no. can't reason with yourself when you've no. gone through something like that. This remains the fourth deadliest nightclub fire in U.S. history. It is the second deadliest in New England. The first is the Coconut Grove Fire in Massachusetts with 492 deaths. Ugh. That is also on our list of cases to cover. Absolutely. Essentially, it was just a domino effect 
where one person's mistake led to another, led to another, led to another. And it's really unfortunate because if even one person had done their job or done their due diligence or maybe had done something a little differently, mm-hmm. maybe more people would have survived. Maybe it wouldn't have happened at all. Right. That's such an, a harrowing thought. Right. And I personally, I don't place blame on any one singular party. It's just really unfortunate that the chain of events happened the way that they did. Yes, I agree. Yeah, and that's the station nightclub fire. Yeah. Truly devastating. My heart goes out to all of those families and friends. Oh, my God. And even the survivors. Even the survivors. I can't even imagine. You're right. I mean, the survivor's guilt is very real, um, and it's devastating, and it's not something we could ever understand unless we mm-hmm. experienced it ourselves. And God, I hope we don't, because that is awful. No, I think for me that was one of the hardest cases to research and to talk about on here. Like, yeah. it was, it's awful. Mass devastation. And just, like, the amount of fear that people must have felt. That's one of the worst parts, I think, about mm-hmm. true crime, is the fear that you know these a lot of these victims in, whether it's a nightclub fire or somebody was murdered, you know, walking home from school. The fear, knowing that the person, the victims, felt fear Mm -hmm. and hopelessness and just so scared in their last moments. I think that's one of the worst parts of true crime. Uh, And this is no exception. For sure. If you guys want to talk to us about this case and what you think, where you place blame, what you think could have gone better... Well, everything could have gone better, but where it could have changed, you can find us on our Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. All lowercase. And you can send us an email at TrueCrimeNE at gmail.com. We also have a website, TrueCrimeNE.com. You can do all of those things using our handy-dandy submission tool. If you scroll down a little further, you could buy us a coffee if you so choose. No pressure. We appreciate you guys just for being here and just for listening. Maybe between now and when we come back from our holiday hiatus, you could go to Spotify and leave us a star rating. You could find us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a star rating and or a written review. And in the meantime, we hope you guys have a lovely holiday season. Happy, happy holidays. Enjoy time with your family, your loved ones. Do something nice for yourself. Celebrate family and holidays and just have Have a blessed end of your year. (laughs) And with that, we'll see you next year. See you next year. Bye. Bye.